And so ends the reading, Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 14. Today's message titled, The Lasting Consequences of a Bad Idea. Now there are a variety of things that will be covered in this study, but we want to focus on one thing in particular that shows what the bad idea that has developed from reading these verses, but also some of the blessings when these verses are rightly understood. So let me start by asking you to imagine with me that you're walking downtown Greenville here, or wherever you happen to live, or one of the shopping malls, and as you walk by, you happen to hear two men in conversation, and you happen to overhear one of them say, you know, I don't need to obey that law. I don't need to obey that law. Now, what do you suppose would cross your mind as to what he meant by that statement? I mean, could you really come to any conclusion about it without knowing more details? Uh, Did he mean tax law? Did he mean uh, speed limit law? Did he mean copyright law? So you see, at a minimum, you would have to know what exactly he meant by the word law in that case. A few weeks ago, as we were considering this same chapter, we read, as you just heard again now, Romans 6.14, For sin, Paul writes, will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, I think that we need to exercise a similar caution before we jump to conclusions about what Paul meant in writing that. And the failure on the part of some in the Christian evangelical Protestant camp to do that has led to many popular misconceptions and, frankly, bad ideas about the nature of law and grace. Because some churches teach that Christians are no longer obligated to obey the law of God as given through Moses. Generally, those who promote that teaching tell us that we are to obey the higher law of love. We should do all things out of a love for Jesus rather than out of some sense of legal obligation. Not least of which is the obligation to obey the law of God, which they can find to some sort of Older Testament thing. Now, I think there are a number of bad ideas, incorrect assumptions about that. And among the foremost is the idea that for some reason, it's impossible to obey the law of God out of love and out of a sense of obligation. You know, you don't have to read too far in the great Psalm 119, before you see that God's Word tells us that we can, in fact, do those things. We can obey God's law out of a sense of love for Him and He for us, and also out of a sense of our obligation to do what He wants us to do. Some of you know that those who deny these things, that we are obligated to obey the law of God, promote what have been called the dispensational teachings. Yes, here we go again. I saw an article just recently, there's a review of a new book that apparently has been published, which is arguing that dispensationalism as a force within Protestant evangelical Christianity is pretty much dead. Now, I read the review of the book, I haven't read the book itself, and I understand sort of where the author is coming from. But you know, there's always been a big divide between the dispensational theological beliefs in their seminaries, like Dallas Seminary and Grace Theological Seminary, between what these professors teach versus the 
popular, down-on-the-ground, your average independent Bible fundamentalist church dispensationalism where people don't engage in deep theological debates. They just read the stuff that they've been uh, hearing and reading over the years. Now, let me just say, too, that with the unfortunate rise of what's come to be known as reformed two-kingdom theology or radical two-kingdom theology within Calvinism, we see some of the same resurgence of, of aspects of this antinomianism. But the biggest impact of this idea about some sort of cleavage between law and grace has come on the heels and the promotion of dispensational teaching. And yes, I know that many of you in this room this morning already know some of the basics about dispensational teaching. But it won't hurt you to be reminded, and there are some who really are quite clueless about not only the meaning of the term, but why it's called that, and, and why this is a bad idea and its lasting consequences. The dispensational teachings arose on the marginal fringe of Anglican Protestant theology, the behest of a former Anglican minister named John Nelson Darby. He was later involved in founding what came to be known as the Plymouth Brethren Movement, and but for a few fateful twists of history, Darby, Darby's strange doctrines would have remained out on the fringes of Protestant Christianity. Such, however, was not to be the case. As by the mid-1930s and into the 1940s, the teachings of this one man and his rather bizarre take on Bible prophecy and the nature of law and grace and, and God's dealings with humanity and biblical history, these teachings became widespread in independent churches and Bible colleges and Bible institutes. Places like the Moody Bible Institute. I'm talking about churches that are independent. They have no connection to any historic Protestant denomination and theological colleges and seminaries that have no connection to a denomination with those same roots. This was fertile ground for these ideas. Now, we are especially aware of this man's teachings as it relates to end times Bible prophecy, the rapture, the Antichrist, and all the rest of that. And this view would become the popular view in many, many, if not most, evangelical churches. Why? How in the world did something that was so strange and marginal become that way? Well, one of the big reasons was the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible in the year 1909. That's how far back the Schofield Reference Bible went. That Bible took Darby's doctrinal beliefs and placed it before a massive audience because it did that by taking a King James Version Bible and then placing Darby's teachings in interpretive footnotes at key verses that promoted these teachings. And so millions of English-speaking Protestants were influenced by these teachings. You got your Bible open, you look down at the bottom, and the Bible, it's a King James Version. It must be right, right? And so uh, it, it, the, the footnotes are telling me what to think about this passage. Now, even though this proliferated in these independent circles that I was mentioning a moment ago, the impact of this was widespread, even in traditional Protestant denominations like our own, the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition. When the Bible Presbyterian Church General Synod was formed in 1938, and prior to that, the denomination out of which we came, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, at the time, Dr. Machen left Princeton along with a number of the faculty and formed what would become the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the BPC. Long before any of that happened, 
These dispensational ideas in the Schofield Reference Bible were quite popular in many Presbyterian churches, contrary to their doctrinal standards. But most of them, because they were coming out of a more or less liberal tradition, had no clue about the conflict between Darby and Schofield's teachings and their own Westminster Confession of Faith. But now following on the heels of the 1909 and 1917 revision of the Schofield Reference Bible, there have been other study, dispensational study Bibles that have propagated these teachings for newer generations. Most notably, some of you may even have one of these. I hope you don't use it. The Ryrie Study Bible, the Dake, D-A-K-E Study Bible, which is massively popular among some Pentecostals and Charismatics. And unfortunately, even though he's a five-point Calvinist, the MacArthur, John MacArthur Study Bible promotes many of these ideas. So that's the first thing that caused these strange teachings to be so pervasive in so many churches. But then secondly, uh, another thing was the impact of the spreading of these ideas through popular media, such as Hal Lindsey's fabulously best-selling book, The Late Great Planet Earth, published in 1970. I I think it remains today, if not the most, one of the highest-selling paperback books in the history of publishing. Thirdly, These ideas were helped along by the work of of notable Bible teachers and pastors who had embraced these doctrines and began to popularize them. Some of them are very familiar names to you. The late Billy Graham, Donald Gray Barnhouse, J. Vernon McGee, Chuck Swindoll, Charles Stanley, uh, among others. Now look, my reason for going or re-going or revisiting these details is for us to come to an understanding as to why some people will read Romans 6.14, as you just heard it, and they will take away this kind of an assessment of it. They will take it to mean this. Brother, you don't have to worry about the law of God. You're under grace. It's all of grace. We're in the age of grace. We're in the church age. The dispensation of law is over and done with. Now let me share with you three reasons how this relates to the subject of God's law and God's grace. But before I I do that, let me just mention an an overpowering, overshadowing, overarching truth that torpedoes this whole statement from the get-go. And that is this. You, I, no one is ever out from under law. You will always be obeying or be accountable to some law somewhere. And we know from the biblical worldview, there are only two sources of law. Either God's law as revealed in Holy Scripture or man's law. And you don't want to be accountable to man's law. If you are, you wind up with where we are today. But the three major reasons as to why that kind of statement, you're not under law, you're under grace, you don't have to obey God's law, that's what it means. First of all, those who make that claim are profoundly mistaken. Because what they want to do, and what they do in the dispensational teaching, is they they mark out, they divide ages, or what they call dispensations of time, where one age begins and another ends. And their division in these ways are arbitrary and they're illogical. Now that becomes important because they say, well, you know, in the age of Adam or Moses, you had the age of law. But that ended, and God completely went away from that, and he went into the age of grace, or the age at the church age, or I, I don't even know the names of all of them. But the point is, when you go from one to the other, the previous one doesn't apply anymore, any way, shape, or form. 
Now, in case this may be somewhat confusing to a few of you, let me try to give you a different example so you'll understand. Here in South Carolina and in the Southland generally, we know you may have come across in studying our history the terms antebellum and postbellum South. Now, that refers to antebellum, which means before the war, meaning the war for Southern independence, and then postbellum, meaning after the war for Southern independence, the so-called Civil War, which dramatically changed everything here in our part of these United States. But it's easy to figure that out because we know formally when war was declared between the Confederacy and the Union, and we know formally when it was ended, when General Lee surrendered at Appomattox. It's not hard to figure out one from the other. But I want you to turn with me in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 to help you understand why these people are so profoundly mistaken in this. Ephesians 1 verses 9 and 10, it's in the Pew Bible on page 1159. Paul writes this, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now notice, as a plan for the fullness of time. That's how it's translated in the ESV. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. But now the New King James Version and the older authorized version and some other versions, they have translated that Greek word oikonomion into English as dispensation. Now, if you just turn over to chapter 3 and look at verse 2, it's on, just turn over to page 1160 if you're using the ESV Pew Bible. Notice, you, you, you can hear the contrast here. I'm going to give you both translations. Ephesians 3.2, ESV, he says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. New King James has it this way. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace which God has given to me. So now you see the dispensationalist, they have defined this word to mean a period of time. But they have read that meaning into the word. I don't know what was in the head of the King James translators in 1611 when they came up with that term dispensation to translate the Greek word oikonomion. But whatever it was, it, it's not the same thing that what the, our dispensation. It was probably it's a perfectly good word if you understand what it actually meant. The fact is the word is not used in any way, shape, or form in Scripture to, to delineate a specific period of time. Nowhere in the Bible is it used that way. Here are several standard definitions from biblical Greek dictionaries. The word means a task. It means a plan. It means to manage a household. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says that it means primarily a stewardship or the management or the disposition of affairs. So then the dispensationalists want this word to mean a clearly defined set of time, but the Bible doesn't use it that way. Now that raises a serious question. Why in the world would these people who we are calling dispensationalists, people who read the Schofield Reference Bible, who promote these teachings, why would they do this if it's so patently wrong? Well, friends, this is the kind of mistake. This is exactly the kind of error that someone who is uninformed and frankly ignorant of the Greek New Testament and its proper interpretation, that's the kind of mistake they would make. And that defines the man who published that Bible, Cyrus I. Schofield, to the T. Never trained in Greek, never trained in seminary, 
He was an attorney, a man with a bad reputation, who, quote, found Christ, and I, I won't go into all the details. But he was no scholar. Neither was Darby, for that matter. So then the second major problem with dispensationalism has to do with the way that they separate what they call national or ethnic Israel or the Jews from the church of Jesus Christ. And this is one of the hallmarks, one of the trademarks of their teaching, the way that they make arbitrary divisions of God's relations with humanity. They teach that God has one plan of deliverance for the Jews as Jews and a totally separate plan for Gentiles who follow Jesus. So the church and Israel as a nation is a totally separate and entity from each other, and God has therefore a separate plan for each of them. All right, so what in the world does this have to do with Paul talking about grace and law? Well, according to this doctrine, Paul in Romans 6.14 is speaking to the church and only to the church. He's not talking to Israel as a nation, according to them. And in their strict divisions of Scripture, the church is a part of this age of grace, or it's outside the age of law. And so for them, there are no aspects of the age of the dispensation of law which, come, which came during the time of Moses. None of that applies to the church today. And that includes the Ten Commandments. I well recall when I was first learning the great truths of the Reformed faith. My wife and I lived in a place in, in North Carolina where in an apartment house and across the hall from us was a very godly Christian couple. And he happened to be a graduate of one of the main dispensational seminaries. I didn't know that much about these things at the time. And I remember asking him because I was coming across things about whether we need to obey the Ten Commandments and that. And I asked him, not knowing, and he said, no, sir, you don't have to obey any of that. We obey what Christ taught us, what, you know, more or less what's in the red letters. One dispensational author wrote this, and I quote, in the Old Testament, there's not one sentence that applies to the Christian as a rule of faith and practice. Let that sink in. It is frankly mind-boggling that any student of Scripture could come to such a conclusion. Why? Because all you have to do is read the, the, the New Testament in particular. With your eyes wide open, Paul wrote in Colossians 3.11 that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, save or free, but Christ is all and in all. And then in Galatians 3, he wrote that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Gentile. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the end of dispensationalism right there, but that didn't stop them. He says, if you are in Christ, then you are, now notice this, if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to the promise. There's no division here between Jew and Greek and Gentile, he says. If you're in Christ, you're all part of the new Israel. So, they're not two separate plans. There's one plan, and that plan is Jesus for everybody. There is only one true Israel of God. And may I say to you on the authority of the divine word of God, if you are of this new Israel, you are connected to God's law. But today, millions of people have been taught through these dispensational teachings and the reference Bibles and the study Bibles and the Bible Institutes and the TV evangelist programs that they don't need any uh, regard for the law of God. What a contrast is that misguided bad idea 
compared to God's holy word. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. In other words, obey my law. Follow my orders. Obey what I have commanded. Now, what commandments do you think Jesus is talking about there? I don't suppose it's the Quran. I don't suppose it's the Hindu commandments. No, it's the law of God he's talking about when he says, obey my commandments. And, and anybody who wants to say, well, no, no, that, that was Moses' writing. Well, either you don't believe Scripture is inspired and inerrant, or you haven't understood who Jesus Christ is, the divine Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. When we talk about the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, it's His Word. The Ten Commandments are as much a part of the words of Jesus as anything in those red letters in your King James Bible. Now let me show you how understanding this properly is a great blessing. And another example of how there are severe consequences from this bad idea if it's not corrected. An important issue for many Christians is that of having assurance. Assurance of God's care for them, assurance of salvation and abundant life, both in this life and the world to come. Knowing that we are truly in Christ, truly in his covenant family. Do you have doubts about your place in God's family? Do you worry about your salvation? Do you not have that solid assurance that you're in Christ? Well, if so, perhaps it's because you're not obeying God's law. You know, if you struggle with assurance of salvation, assurance of faith, you don't need to read Calvin's Institutes three times in a row, although it wouldn't hurt you to do it. And you don't need to read the Bible and the Greek text. And allow me to say, we don't need revival either when it comes to assurance. I'll talk about that a little bit more in this evening's study. But what we do need, friends, is obedience to the Word of God. Jesus said that if you obey me, my commandments... You will remain in my love. That's what Jesus said. That is a sure sign that you're following Jesus. Because you have a desire to express your love for him through obedience. Not through a revival service. Not getting all teary-eyed and emotional and then being the same thing like you were six months later. Now I want you to turn with me in the book of Romans to chapter 13. It's on page 1127 of the Pew Bible. Romans 11, excuse me, Romans 13, and look at verse 9. Romans 13, 9, verse, uh, page 1127 of the Pew Bible. What Paul says here, let me just tell you about it, because we're going to come back in a moment to 1 Corinthians. Paul says, your love for your neighbor is shown by your obedience to the commandments. That's how you love your neighbor, obeying Christ's commandments. That's what Paul says here in Romans 13. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, I'm going to read this from two other translations. Listen, 1 Corinthians 7, 19. He says, circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter, but keeping God's commands does. Another translation says, to be circumcised is of no importance, and to be uncircumcised is of no importance. What is important is the keeping of God's commandments. So when Paul says in Romans 6 that we're not under law, he means a couple of different things by that. One thing he does not mean is what the dispensationalists mean. What he does mean, for example, is that we don't have to worry about all the ritualistic ceremonial things that Christ has done away with. But he also means that if you are in Christ, 
The law is no longer something that condemns you. It now becomes your way of life. Something that is a blessing to us. This goes right back to what I said earlier. You will not escape being accountable to somebody's law. And ultimately, it's either God or Satan. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen that it makes no difference whether a man has obeyed the ceremonial law. The important thing is the keeping of the commandments of God. In the epistle of 1 John, we're told that we can have assurance in Christ by being obedient to his commandments. In 1 John 3, we read, if someone says, I belong to God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and does not live in the truth. Those who obey God's commandments live in fellowship with him and he with them. There's your assurance of faith, my friends. What a contrast dispensationalism's teaching are to the historic Protestant Christian faith. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 19.5, quote, the moral law does forever bind all justified as well as others to the obedience thereof. In other words, God's law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, is binding forever on every human being, whether they're saved or unsaved, whether they're redeemed or unredeemed. That's what Paul was getting at in the very first chapter of Romans. It doesn't matter who you are because you know there's a God. My friends, the testimony of the Bible and the historic Protestant faith is that we are indeed saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. There's no longer a temple in Jerusalem with blood sacrifices. We are indeed free from that aspect of the law. But you see, in the real world, and again, as I alluded to earlier, there is law that is inescapable. It is having an ethical standard of how you are to live that binds and affects every aspect of a person's life. And again, to say it one more time, it's either going to be God's law or humanistic law, Satan's law. And what we're witnessing in our society today is the, the battle between those who want to maintain their accountability to God's law versus those who are marching to the orders of Satan's ethical standards. And the people in the latter category have the upper hand for the time being, especially in the media and all the rest of it. You will never get away from law-keeping and law-obeying. One of the founders of my alma mater, Westminster Theological Seminary, Cornelius Van Til, used to say, in that regard, there are only two choices. It's either man's law as a law unto himself, or it's God and his righteous laws. Um, I um, have been seeing a lot of YouTube videos pop up on my YouTube account. And some of you, if you watch YouTube videos of various sorts, whether it's, you know, Ligonier Ministries or some, you know, some biblical teaching or just a movie, whatever it is, you know, they curate what they think you might be interested in. And I don't know how this, but this popped up and all of a sudden I've got video clips of dash cam cameras recording car wrecks. You know, somebody cutting out in front of somebody else and smashing into the car in front of them, this kind of thing. And I was watching one of these, and it reminded me of something I heard about that took place some years ago on an interstate highway in Wisconsin. A man was traveling in the wrong direction on this divided highway. Well, the state troopers caught up with him, and they asked him, do you realize you're going the wrong way? And the man said, yes, yes, I do. And so they said, well, why didn't you get off at one of the off-ramps and 
Go back the right way. And you know what the man said? He said, well, look, I started to do that several times, but every time I started to do it, there was a sign that said wrong way. Don't enter. You see, friends, that man wanted to obey the law even though he was disobeying it. Every time he tried to do something to obey the law, he found he was unable to do it in his mind. Now, I'm telling you that story because right along with everything else we've said, we've got to remember, in our own strength, we are unable to be obedient to God. It's only when we are fully united to Christ Jesus by His Spirit as our Lord, who is Himself the perfect law of God, that we can obey Him. Paul wrote in Romans 13, 13, Let us live decently as in the light of day, with no immorality or drunkenness, no promiscuity or licentiousness, and no wrangling or jealousy. See, Paul is telling Christians to walk according to God's law. Jesus Christ is the word of God. The Bible is the word of Christ. All of it, not just the red letters. And to follow and obey Christ is to follow and obey his word, his law. And neither Jesus nor any of the apostles taught that the law is some sort of optional add-on for the Christian. Yes, indeed. Our deliverance is all of God's grace. And that means there's nothing that we have done to get God's attention for him to choose us before the foundation of the world. And that's all of grace. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 4-9, memorable passage, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Now notice what he says in verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now somebody might hear that and say, well, wait a minute. That means we don't have to obey the law, right? Not of works. But no, listen to what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should obey them. New Jerusalem Bible translates it this way, the good works which God has already designated to make up our way of life. So what is our way of life this morning? Is it the way of God's law, His commandments? Is it the way of showing our love for Jesus by obeying His word, all of it? You know, we make our salvation and faith visible by becoming law keepers and lovers of God's law, and haters of every evil way. And so you see, friends, today, a lot of people are headed in the wrong direction in life because they've got these bad ideas. But the law of God stands before us as one way sign with two basic messages. It tells us, first of all, that there is only one acceptable way to live according to God. But then, mercifully, it also tells us what that way is. And by God's grace, let us walk in it. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word as the standard of life. We thank you that you've given us salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus our Savior. And Father, having been given these things, we are deeply grateful that you have not left us to work out the rest of it on our own without any guidance from you that out of your love and mercy, you have given us your divine law word. 
to be our way of life. And we thank you for it in the name of Christ. Amen.